Do you want to improve sustainability, lower emissions and save costs? Find the solutions you need with Farnell, a partner of this podcast and your electronics and industrial products provider. Explore industrial computers, controllers, semiconductors, tools and more on Farnell.com. Enjoy this episode with Farnell. So welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm Editor of New Civil Engineer. Today we're going to be looking at how technology built into our infrastructure is changing the way we operate and maintain structures, as well as how that will evolve in the future. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Farnell Electronics, and we're going to be looking at how the Internet of Things and intelligent infrastructure is driving change in the world of civil engineering. Joining me for the discussion, I have Rory McCulley, who is Associate Director with Arup. Rory works across the transport, energy and water sectors, leading a London-based team that is focused on data-centric engineering. His team combined data, statistics, software and machine learning to solve engineering problems in the built environment. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Rory. Hi, Claire, and thanks for inviting me to the Engineers Collective to talk about intelligent infrastructure today. Thank you. Now, just to set the scene for this episode, the timing fits very good because I've just written the, an article for NC's 50th anniversary supplement, they look back at for predictions that were made in 1997 for the 25th anniversary supplement. And it was looking ahead to the kind of world that civil engineers be working in it by 2022. And one of the stories looked at intelligent infrastructure, and it predicted that by 2022, there'd be self-monitoring and self-policing bridges. It was anticipated that these structures would weigh approaching traffic, calculate the stresses such traffic would produce, and check the bridge was still capable of accepting such stresses and switch on red traffic lights if the answer was negative. It was also forecast that maintenance robots would were expected to lurk inside the bridge's weather shielding, poised to scuttle out into action whenever a streetlight failed or a barrier was damaged. And then when the bridge decided that it was beyond economic repair, it would order its own replacement, which, like the original, would be light enough to be lifted into place during a single nighttime possession. It's forecast that just about everything would be intelligent by 2022. Um, I think we're not quite there yet. Rory, how far do you think we are away from that? Uh, quite away. I mean, some of those predictions were, were really ambitious, weren't they? And if we look back at, at those predictions, let, let's say we take the traffic, uh, the bridge and the traffic light example, you know, across the supply chain, I actually, I believe in society, we have the technologies and capabilities to implement a system that estimates the the weight of a vehicle, changes the traffic light to red if that that weight couldn't be supported by the bridge. Whether such a system has been implemented in practice, though, I'm I'm not sure. Perhaps it's not economically worthwhile to implement that compared with other solutions. Um, and it, it, that would probably also indicate the bridge is kind of fundamentally flawed or, or distraught in some way such that it just needed to be upgraded or, or repaired in the first place. But I think that would actually, that sort of situation would be would be possible today. And if we start talking about these sort of maintenance robots, I think we're quite still quite a far way away mm. from, from that situation that's described. But if you look back over the last 25 years, I think some, some really good uh, progress has been made. There are now brick-laying robots, uh, inspection drones, and I, I saw recently there's a spot the robot dog that can navigate construction sites. And, and these are sort of the enabling technologies that need to be developed further to realize the, the examples that you, you've mentioned. 
I think if we put a time frame on it, Balfour Beatty published a vision recently about humanless construction by 2050. So while that seems still seems ambitious, I think that that could be possible. But I do think sometimes you've got to look a long way ahead to kind of work out what the steps are going to be to get there. Yeah, exactly. And and we've seen we're seeing some of those steps happening. Uh, you know, over the last five, five, ten years, and some of the things that are starting to come come through um, things like Innovate UK uh, in, in the construction industry. So, before we explore further what, how we're going to move to intelligent infrastructure, let's go right back to the beginning and explain what we need, mean by Internet of Things. Rory, what's your definition? I know lots of people have a different idea of what it means. The Internet of Things is the concept of connecting any device to the internet and to other connected devices. This and bit is really important because just connecting to the internet in any device can really do that these days, but connecting to other devices via the internet, that is really what defines IoT in, in, in my mind. Now, the IoT is a giant network of connected things and people, and all of which collect and share data about the way they are used and the environment around them. As an example of it in action, Take my thermostat, my boiler, and my phone. My phone is connected to the internet, as is my thermostat, which is connected to my boiler. When I leave work and start my journey home, my phone is sending messages to my thermostat, what my location is and what my trajectory is. And it will then assess if I'm heading home. And if my home is below a certain temperature, my, my thermostat will tell the boiler to turn on. When I arrive at home, the, the property should be, should be warm, hopefully. So that's really in action and, and shows that sort of the connectivity of devices is really key part of the definition of IoT. And that's become even more critical with rising energy prices recently, I guess. Yes, the, the bill that I uh, received recently was much larger than it, <laughs> than it was a few months ago. Um, I think a, a tough thing for, for all of us at, at the moment. Yeah, definitely. So in your opinion, are there any industries that are leading the way in the use of Internet of Things that civil engineers can learn from? Manufacturing and logistic firms are probably the ones I would look to first, um, especially in the context of, of construction. Uh, as engineers, we're designing assets that need to be made or, or fixed. And the manufacturing sector is a sector that, that creates things. And they have used IoT to great effect to uh, optimize their manufacturing processes. And they've been doing that for, for quite a while now. And there's actually some of that is starting to come into the construction industry. I've seen an example recently where companies are tagging or putting RFID tags um, on precast concrete panels in, in the yard, and that's helping them track how they're, they're going through the yard and then also how they're getting to site and where they then need to be placed to site. And that's all then also tracked to all the engineers' uh, BIM models and, and things like that. And that's really helping to, to drive efficiency and, and minimize errors on, on site. So that, that's definitely like a, a really good example of where we've taken something that's been happening in manufacturing for some time and, and applied it in, in our industry. So let's look at what the benefits are of adopting such technology and civil engineering infrastructure. In your opinion, what would it mean for preventative maintenance? Does it improve safety for the public who use the infrastructure or does it reduce costs? What does it actually mean? So if we focus on preventative maintenance first, the, the benefit I see in, in IoT is, is really being able to make higher quality and more informed decisions on a more regular basis. And over time, this should result in a better, more cost-effective maintenance of society's assets. IoT sensors can be placed on almost anything, 
And then we can then get the data from almost anything about a particular asset. We can then get that data far more regularly than, than we would from an annual inspection. And that can enable us to identify where assets are distressed much earlier than we might, might normally. And then from a safety perspective, this has uh, benefits for engineers as well. Not having to put themselves in more dangerous working conditions, you know, to inspect an asset, whether that's confined spaces or working at height. And then safety-wise as well on the, the public side, if we're able to observe a asset failing earlier than an inspection might uh, through sensors, then, then there can be a, a safety benefit for the, the public as well. So, and what is the data that's generated from the Internet of Things? What's that going to drive in terms of design or how we maintain our structures? Does it mean that if we've got more data, we can leave it longer periods between inspections? Yeah, so that's a, a great question, actually. So we've got some examples of doing this kind of thing at Arup. So one of the projects I know one of our bridge teams are working on in the Netherlands is looking at a, a bridge that's about 50, 60 years old, and it's, it's shown signs of fatigue. And so that bridge has been instrumented with a load of sensors that are connected to the internet. And then from that, we're able to pull that information in and actually understand what the traffic loading is on the bridge and compare that with how it was originally designed and, and try to reestimate sort of how much lifespan that bridge has got left. But we're also able to link that data into our you know, structural analysis software to do even further analysis on that to to see what we can design to even further extend the life expectancy of the bridge rather than having to build a new one from, from scratch and replace it. Because I guess a lot of bridges had a design life of 40 years when they were built and some of those are coming to the end of their design life, but there isn't the budget to actually replace all of those. Yeah, yeah, correct. So if we're able to demonstrate through um, you know IoT sensors, strain gauges, that the bridge hasn't necessarily been subject to the loads that it was designed for, there is certainly a case there to then extend the life of, of that bridge or, or whatever asset it might be that, that you're looking at. So are you seeing clients beginning to be willing to put those kind of sensors on new structures so that they're right from the beginning? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We we worked on a project in Hong Kong, Stonecutters Bridge. Again, it's it's another bridge example where that, that's had sensors on it from, from the start. And there was a, a really sort of extreme weather event and the... The, the people that, that run the bridge then asked us to analyze the, the data to see how does that compare with the design? You know, does the bridge need any any works? It was the first time it was subject to a weather event. So yeah, that, that stuff is happening on, on new assets that are, that are going forward. So could it possibly mean that self-policing, self-monitoring bridges that were predicted in NC's 25th anniversary, especially in 1997, are becoming a reality with that kind of data? I'll see not immediately, given the silence. <laughs> <laughs> no, not not immediately. You know, because part of the vision was that the bridge would be able to order its replacement, and I don't I don't see that that part coming anytime soon. I think there's there's still an, an element of uh, people are going to have to decide what to prioritize, what what budgets go where, and, and that kind of thing. And I don't think a bridge it, itself is going to determine that across an entire network. But the the idea that sensors uh, installed on brand new structures in fifty years can, you know, feed back enough information to say I am at the end of my design life. You need to look at me, and ideally you're doing it much before then. But you know, I, I do see that as definitely being a possibility. There's definitely a need for engineers going forward. It's not as if these sensors are going to replace us. No, no, not at all, not at all. 
And, uh, you know, if, if the sensors mean that the sort of simpler problems that we, we tackle have been automated and, and sensors and IoT and machine learning and these technologies can handle those problems for us, it just gives us the time and space to focus on, on more difficult problems that um, we're, we're working on today. You know, the net zero challenge that we've got ahead of us uh, is going to need many of us to to get behind it and, and look at that problem. So if some aspects of, of asset management and maintenance can be automated, I think that's a good thing. Also, I guess it will help the client, the infrastructure owners, to actually budget better for that maintenance work when they can see it's coming. Yeah, definitely. I, I know having spoke with a few clients, uh, one of their challenges are that they're often doing maintenance very reactively. And that's a that's quite an expensive thing to to have to do. And to be able to do it more proactively would, would mean they have to pay a bit more upfront to get the, the data and the information to make better decisions. But that should, in theory, and I have seen it in, in practice as well, that you can then sort of have a, a cheaper maintenance regime in, in the long term because you're, you're just being more proactive about it. And I suppose it also helps ensure the availability of that asset for whether it's a road or railway or something like that. So it prevents passengers being obstructed from carrying out their journey. Yeah, exactly. And when we talk about sort of intelligent infrastructure, it's not just about the um, asset itself and and how it's performing, but how it is meeting the needs of society and how that can be improved. And going back to the the traffic light situation on, on the bridge, intelligent infrastructure could and IoT can be used to improve the, the traffic network and flow as a, as a whole. And it can, with uh, Google Maps and all the sort of wayfinding technologies that are out, if that can be linked to the structure of an asset, is it safe, is it not? That all could be linked in to, to make it a, a better place for, for people to get around. So when you kind of talk about Internet of Things, I suppose each bridge is an Internet of Things on its own. It's connecting into a system to do that. Mm. Not so sure. Yeah, it, it's, a bit, it's a bit difficult to say every bridge is going to connect into a system. I, I guess the challenge there is making sure that uh, asset owners are, uh, would be willing to have data about their bridges open, actually. And as, as long as they're and, and talking in a consistent data format, uh, schema and, and that kind of thing. So people could actually ingest that information as part of if something that they build themselves uh, to then provide provide value to society through an, through an application, through um, re, rerouting people through your GPS in your car, uh, whatever it might be. So I suppose that brings us on to data security. We hear a lot about hacking and data being stolen these days. Does adoption of Internet of Things to power intelligent infrastructure put our infrastructure at risk? I, I guess that depends on what sensors you put in place and what they're doing. If, if you ever say, again, talking about bridges, if you have a, a strain gauge on a bridge, that isn't going to impact the, the security or, or anything like that of, of that bridge. But if you start to start looking, if you start looking at the uh, interconnected nature of all, all these devices, and you start allowing these devices to make uh, decisions or you know turn a traffic light on or off, there's inevitably going to be an increased risk when that isn't actually being used at the moment. And so I think there will be a real need to you know keep an eye on that and make sure that the systems are, are built not just from a, a technical engineering, logic, physics, this is safe sense, but also a, a security point of view and making sure that these systems um, can't be attacked by by malicious actors. So I suppose it's just something to be aware of and build into our thought process in the future. 
So you've already talked about the Stonecutters Bridge as an example of a civil engineering project that was integrating sensors. Have you got any other examples of structures that are already doing that and, and what benefits that's driving in terms of operation and maintenance? Yeah, so I can talk a bit about uh, some work we're doing on tunnel inspections. Now, these aren't sensors that are uh, put directly on the assets themselves, but they're sensors that are put on things that travel down the the, the tunnel. So we have like a, I call it a trolley, and it's got a frame on it, and it's got um, various sensors and, and cameras that are mounted on this frame, and we, we send that down the tunnel, and it takes all that information. And, and from the data that we capture, we're able to process that using machine learning algorithms so we can detect faults in the tunnel lining. So we can detect things like cracks, um, areas that we've got water ingress and, and other defects. And because we've attached that to like a trolley, we no longer need to send a person down 30 kilometers of tunnel, which takes a really, really long time. And because we can automatically process the data, we're able to then look at um, how the defects change with time in a, in a much more robust and, and rigorous way. And that allows us to then enable us to understand deterioration rates of the assets and things like that. And then that is then able to feed into, you know, a, a better operation, maintenance and, and closure plan for, for the asset. And, and the, just the time to, to do the inspection itself as well is, um, is hugely reduced down from, I think it's, it's 60 days manually to about four days automatically so that's you know less less need for the asset owner to to give possession of, of the asset to us so we can um, so we can actually do the inspection work in the first place so there's huge benefits and I guess those inspections have to be carried out at night as well when there aren't passenger trains and things going down those tunnels yeah pre- precisely so it's, it's a really good thing on the sort of health and safety and well-being of our staff as well because they're no longer having to do uh, night shifts or, you know, not 60 days worth of night shifts. So it's it's a benefit from that perspective as well. So in the fullness of time, as more and more of these structures get this kind of um, sensors incorporated and we're getting more data, do you think that will change how we design structures as we better understand the stresses and strains they're put under during operation and we can have less conservative designs in the future? I don't think it will initially change how we design structures, I think we will be able to design structures from a more informed view. So the data will be able to inform us, you know, what the actual loadings on on different types of assets are, how they behave under certain uh, loading conditions that can help us to better understand um, how we can improve our analytical techniques and, and things like that. And if we have enough data, we may even be able to go back to sort of first principles and take more of a probabilistic approach to how we design assets. So in that case, we'd be replacing you know, factors of safety and doing a more risk-based, probabilistic-based design. But I think for the industry to get to that point, we're going to need way more data than we actually have access to at the moment. Um, so over time, yes, but I think initially it, it'll be small steps. Yeah, quite a long way from that. So how long do you think it will take for the industry to wholly move in that direction? Obviously, we didn't quite hit the 1997 predictions of 2022. But do you think it'll be another 25 years? Or do you think it will be, the infrastructure will be truly intelligent by 2047 when NC hits 75? Or would you think it'll be longer? For true, what, what I would call truly intelligent infrastructure, I think it, it would be would be longer. You know, there's, there's a lot of pressure on uh, budgets at the moment. There's, you know, there's a lot going on, especially after, after COVID. And there's priorities like fi- fixing bridges and, and other assets might take uh, precedence over 
trying to censor a bridge that's just been uh, just been built to to get data that might not realise value for some time because it's a it's a brand new bridge. So, and um, what do the main barriers and misconceptions need to be overcome to get us to that point of actually getting that kind of data? Um, yeah, there is a there is a lot to unpack on on that one. Actually, I think there's um, there's potentially like a, a skills barrier in the industry, and uh, engineers are good at design, but they're not necessarily great at manipulating data, and that is a that can be a real challenge because when you get all of this data from all these different devices and you don't have the skills to work with it, it's very easy to go back to to how you used to work with things. So I guess engineers need a whole new skill set to be able to manage this and actually move forward with it. I, I wouldn't, I've been debating that myself actually and, and looking at some of the internal change and training and things like that we're doing in, in Arup with our, with our engineers. And I think there's two ways you can look at it. You can say um, engineers need to be better equipped to work with uh, large amounts of data. Um, or perhaps they just need to see the opportunity that um, how they could have more effective outcomes on the projects that they work on if they were able to use that data in, in a better way. And if you if you took that sort of second approach, you could have it so civil engineers are working with data specialists, data scientists, data engineers, data analysts, and let the people with the data skills do the data, the hard data aspects, and let the civil engineers have the sort of uh, the context, the understanding of the problem, and to make sure that the solution that is derived is, is actually safe and and uh, useful for society. And so it, it could, and it's probably going to be both, actually, longer term. What about the other barriers? You said there's a lot to unpack. Are there are other issues that you think we should be considering or looking at? Yeah, I mean, at, at the moment, we still have a lot of clients, companies, uh, agencies that are still very much in a sort of paper-based world. Inspections, for example, a, lo- a lot of that is uh, paper-based. And so the idea that you go from paper-based to IoT, it's it's too much of a leap for for, for many people. You need to go on a, on a bit of a journey to, to go, you know, can you go from um, doing inspections paper-based to doing it on, on a phone or, or a tablet? And you know, automatically referencing the photos that are taken. If you went from that to that, that would be a huge step for for a lot of um, sort of clients and and that that we work with. And a lot of clients are trying to go go down that path. But yeah, to to jump to IoT intelligent infrastructures is a bit of a, a step for for quite a few. So small small steps, and and we will get there. So you talked about perhaps being able to deliver better outcomes in terms of projects. What kind of things do you think would be different if we had that approach? in terms of what we deliver? Well, that's, as a, should we say, if we're talking about design uh, and what we deliver, I'd like to think that we're delivering a, um, I mean, structures are already pretty safe, so to make them safer is is actually a really difficult thing, but perhaps a more efficient design or perhaps something that accounts for other factors that society uh, values. Whether they can put a monetary value on that is, is difficult, but we could do design better from a more informed position, having the data. If we know how structures degrade and deteriorate, we could potentially change the way that we do our designs or what we consider in our designs to sort of optimise against the capital expenditure and the operational sort of expenditure and the only the, the cost of remediating or maintaining an asset, but also the cost of society. Because if you have to fix, a, say, a, a road or a bridge or a tunnel, 
that has uh, downtime consequences for how the asset is is serving society. So if we can start to account for that as well, I think we will come up with with slightly different designs than than we do now, which hopefully give a better performance in society. Do you think it also help enable using um, more carbon efficient materials and new materials that perhaps aren't so proven if you're getting this data through? Yes, definitely. I think if we have uh, sensors installed on various assets that are using new materials, we will be much much more effectively and much more quickly able to learn how those materials behave in a real-world setting. And if we can do that, then we might be able to adopt these materials more broadly, more quickly. Because a lot of, a lot of this is, has to be evidence-based. And when people tend to see the evidence, they're more likely to then go and use these things rather than, than them being sort of experiments and all oh, that's only been in, in use for a year. We're not too sure yet. Type, type discussions. We can avoid those and, and get on with it. Yeah, and clients never quite like to be the first, do they? Just in case. Uh, there's a few. There's a few that experiment, which is um, is always good. And there's a, you know there's a lot of innovation happening in, in the UK, and that's all all really positive to, to see. Actually, uh, we can always do more, but it's a it's a good start. Um, so if we can go down this data route and using intelligent infrastructure and all that kind of thing, do you think it will open up the industry to more people that wouldn't have considered a career in civil engineering before? Because it perhaps moves it on beyond what they think about it just being designing structures. Yeah, a real opportunity if we're able to demonstrate we can use um, data in the built environment more effectively, that's going to showcase to people that might not traditionally look at an engineering uh, industry or, or career to, to come and join us. We have Quite, quite a few challenges uh, employing people with really good data skills in the industry. We're not, you know, we're not a tech industry. We're not particularly known for it. So if, if we can do that and they can see the impact that we're having on society, you know, better journey times, less disruption and maintenance and delays uh, that actually impact what, what people do and, and how they live, then I, I think that's a great opportunity to, to showcase what we're about and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, because I definitely think people don't appreciate infrastructure until it's not there or they can't use it. They take it for granted until that point. So, yeah, precisely, and it's 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 expensive stuff, right? It's not it's not cheap to mm. to build some of the some of these things that we we design and and, and operate. So so to get more people to help us uh, do that more effectively in a in a data driven way is would be hugely beneficial for for not only us as engineers but us as us in society. So I think there's a huge potential for Internet of Things and intelligent infrastructure to change the way we're doing things. But I think that's just about all we've got time for today. So thank you very much for joining me today, Rory. And thank you to Farnell Electronics for their support with this episode. In terms of technology, civil engineering looks very different from when NC launched in 1972. And it's significantly changed between 1997 and 2022 as well, although we haven't quite got as far as perhaps it was predicted back then. But it's really hard to imagine what technology we'll be using in 25 years or even 50 years' time. But I think one thing for sure is NCU will be here reporting on those changes as they happen. So we'll be back soon with another episode of the Engineers Collective. Do you want to improve sustainability, lower emissions and save costs? Find the solutions you need with Farnell a partner of this podcast and your electronics and industrial products provider. Explore industrial computers, controllers, semiconductors, tools and more on farnell.com. Enjoy this episode with Farnell.